Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. We are in the season of Advent, looking ahead to Christmas. Now, the culture jumps straight into Christmas, but that's because the culture doesn't really understand what Christmas is all about. Uh, Perhaps more than anything, our culture sees the Christmas season as uh, an opportunity to uh, increase sales and businesses and and that kind of thing, taking advantage of uh, the sentimentalism of the season and that sort of thing. The reality is Christmas only makes sense against the backdrop of Advent. No Advent, no Christmas. Advent should be understood as a time of preparation, Christmas as a time of celebration. Advent is a time of promise, Christmas is a time of fulfillment. Which means the relationship of Advent to Christmas is essentially the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Promise. Fulfillment. In the Old Testament, God gives promises. He gives prophecies. And in the New, we see how they come to fulfillment. Christmas, of course, is about a birth. More than anything, this is what Christmas is about. A miraculous birth. The birth of God's Son in human flesh. The birth of God's Son in human form. Coming to be the promised Messiah to redeem and rule over His people. Christmas is about the birth of the Savior God promised to send. But to anticipate that better, uh, the Old Covenant Scriptures are full of stories of special, even miraculous births, each one pointing ahead to that birth on Christmas Day. Think of all the amazing births in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is uh, really the story of one miraculous, remarkable birth after another. You have barren women who are granted children. Sarah in her old age giving birth to Isaac. Barren Rebecca giving birth to Jacob and Esau. Barren Rachel giving birth to Benjamin. Manoah's barren wife giving birth to Samson. And of course the story we've read this morning where barren Hannah gives birth to Samuel. All of these women experienced barrenness. They deeply mourned their infertility. They knew they were created to have babies, but they couldn't. You can see that in Hannah's story. Uh, You see that in Hannah's misery again and again in this story. That misery is increased by the fact that her husband Elkanah has taken a second wife, probably because Hannah, his first wife, could not conceive. And so Elkanah has two wives, and if you're wondering, that's one too many. That's one over the, the limit. That's... Not a good idea. Not surprisingly, these wives have become rivals. And we see especially uh, this with Penina provoking Hannah in verse 6 because she has children and Hannah does not. Hannah's the first wife. She's especially favored by her husband. But Penina is the one with the children. And so she mocks Hannah. She provokes Hannah. And so how do we see Hannah responding to all of this? Well, verse 7, we see Hannah weeping and refusing to eat. She seems to be depressed over this. Verse 8, Elkanah asks why she is so grieved. Uh, And he tries to comfort her, but to no avail. Verse 10 repeats this fact that Hannah is weeping. It describes her anguish of soul. 
And it's interesting, when she's praying in the temple, she's gone into the temple to pray, whatever house of God existed at this point in history. Uh, Eli, the high priest, sees her, and her lips are moving, but no sound is being made. He accuses her of being drunk. And she responds by saying, I haven't drunk wine. In fact, we know she's been fasting. She says, I haven't drunk wine. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's really what prayer is. It's pouring your heart out before the Lord. And this accusation of being drunk, remember, that's the same accusation brought against the disciples in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems that Hannah is filled with the Spirit. She's praying in the Spirit. But Eli accuses her of drunkenness as if her situation wasn't bad enough. Now she's got the high priest making false accusations against her. And so in verse 16, she says she has been praying out of her abundant grief and misery. She's not drinking wine in. She's pouring out her pain before the Lord, giving her grief to the Lord. In fact, really what you see when you look at the whole first part of this story, what you see more than anything else is Hannah's pain simply leaping off the page. We see in all different kinds of ways her misery, her hurt, her suffering. And note that her barrenness is not the result of any sin on her part. This is not some kind of punishment or discipline on the part of the Lord. In fact, as we see Hannah throughout this story, she's very faithful in every way. The explanation given of her barrenness is very simple. Verse 6, the Lord closed her womb. Whatever medical issues there might be or whatever else might be going on, the Lord closed her womb. This is the Lord's doing. And this is so important to see here and all throughout Scripture. God is sovereign over our suffering. Whatever shape your suffering takes, whether it's childlessness or singleness or sickness or joblessness, bereavement, persecution, whatever shape your suffering takes, whatever source there seems to be behind your suffering... Ultimately, your suffering is part of God's sovereign plan. God's sovereignty is behind your suffering. And knowing God is sovereign over our suffering transforms how we view our pain. This is so important to see about Hannah. Look at Hannah's situation and how others respond to her situation. Penina mocks Hannah for her suffering. Elkanah pities Hannah for her suffering. But what does Hannah do? She doesn't become angry or bitter. She doesn't feel sorry for herself. She doesn't think of herself as some kind of victim. Instead, she turns to the Lord in prayer. She gives her grief and her anguish to the Lord in prayer. And indeed, it seems her grief is so deep she can't even express it in words. Again, Eli sees her lips moving, but he doesn't hear her voice. He seems oblivious to what real faithfulness looks like, which doesn't bode well for Eli. You go on in Samuel, you see that Eli is uh, not all that spiritually sharp at this point. What is Hannah doing? She is praying from the heart. Romans 8 talks about the Holy Spirit making intercession for us in groanings that cannot be uttered. Hannah is praying in the Spirit. Her groaning here is too deep for words. She's taking her suffering to the Lord in prayer through the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 11, Hannah asked the Lord to look upon her misery. This actually is interesting because it echoes the language of Exodus, particularly Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where God 
says he has seen the misery of his people in Egypt. It's like Hannah sees herself the way the Israelites were in Egypt, in slavery, and she cries out, out of her misery, hoping the Lord will see her. And if the Lord does see her misery and deliver her, it will be like a new exodus. This connects her plight with the suffering Israelites. What else can we say about how Hannah prays? Her prayer is connected to the vow she makes in verse 11. If God answers her prayer, what will she do? She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. She makes a vow to the Lord. Later in the story, in verse 23 of chapter 1, Elkanah confirms this vow. What is Hannah doing? What is this vow all about? She's not bargaining with God. She's simply stating what the desire of her heart is. There are a couple things here to notice. First, she says if she's given a son, she will give him back to the Lord. If the Lord gives her a son, she will give this son back to the Lord. And that's what she does. If you skip ahead to verse 20, uh, you find that Hannah is favored with a son. Actually, Hannah's name means favored one. So the favored one is favored. God opens her womb, and she gives birth as she names her son Samuel. Hannah prayed in verse 11, Lord, remember your maidservant. In verse 19, we are told that the Lord remembered. The Lord remembered. In Scripture, God remembering doesn't mean that God actually forgot something and then remembers that thing. Nothing ever slips God's mind, of course. Rather, what this means is when God remembers all throughout Scripture, when God remembers, it means God acts to keep His covenant. When God remembers, it means He acts to fulfill His promises. It's God remembering His own promises and then acting to bring those promises to fulfillment. And that tells you something really important about what's going on here. When God answers her prayer, what happens to Hannah is part of a much larger story. God is doing something, not just for Hannah, He's doing something for His people. He's doing something to fulfill His purposes in history. And Hannah understands that, as we're going to see. She knows this is not really just about her personal plight, her personal suffering. There's much more going on. The other thing to notice here is what Hannah says about who this son will be. She will give him back to the Lord, but in what form? What is that going to look like? Well, she says that uh, no razor will touch his head. She vows no razor will ever touch the head of her son. The implication here is that he will be a lifetime Nazarite. Her son will be a lifelong Nazarite. So what's a Nazarite? Well, the, the Nazarite vow, the law of the Nazarite is described in Numbers chapter 6. This is a very special and important institution uh, in the uh, Torah, in the Old Testament. Nazarites were men who were specially dedicated to God. To be a Nazarite means you're on a special mission for God. Many times, uh, Nazarite vows were temporary. So, for example, Israelites, before they would go into battle, the men would take a Nazarite vow before going uh, to war, saying, we're on a mission from God, we're fighting the Lord's battle in doing this. But in this case... Hannah says her son Samuel will be a Nazarite for life. And in this case, that means that when he is old enough, 
to live apart from his mother. He will live at the temple. He will serve God in the temple. He will be a servant in the house of the Lord. It seems that uh, Elkanah, actually we, we find from elsewhere in Scripture that he was, even though he lived in uh, the region of Ephraim, he was a Levite. And so it makes sense that his son, who is a Levite, would be a sort of permanent priest, always serving, always ministering in the Lord's house. And what do we find? I'm, I'm guessing when Samuel was three years old, uh, because three bulls are brought, when Samuel's three years old, they go to the house of the Lord. They bring these three bulls with them to offer to the Lord, to cover these three years of Samuel's life when he was at home. Remember, he was dedicated to the Lord his whole life long, but he wasn't going to go live in the Lord's house until he was three years old. So three bulls are brought to substitute for those three years of Samuel's life that weren't given to the Lord. They go to the Lord when he's three years old. They offer these sacrifices, and Hannah gives the child over to Eli, the high priest. And Hannah says to Eli, I'm the woman who stood here and prayed to the Lord. This is the child I prayed for, and the Lord answered my petition. Therefore, I am giving him to the Lord for as long as he lives. The one asked for is received and is now given back. And I'm sure this is no easy thing for Hannah to do, to give up her beloved son, to hand him over to Eli, to the house of the Lord. But she is fulfilling her vow. Now, interestingly, right about the same time Samuel is born, another lifetime Nazarite is born to another barren woman. If you put everything together, Samuel and Judges, the book of Samuel and the book of Judges, you find that Samuel and Samson are born right at the same time. Samuel is born miraculously. Samson is born miraculously. We'll actually look at Samson's miraculous birth next time. Uh, Samuel and Samson are both lifetime Nazarites. Interesting connection. Both most likely born the same year. Both born to previously barren women. And what happens, they're going to become like a one-two punch against the Philistines who have enslaved the Israelites. They are going to be the ones together who will deliver the Israelites from Philistine oppression. Oppression that goes on for 40 years until Samuel and Samson rise up to bring it to an end and to restore the nation of Israel. And you have hints of that, hints of what is to come in Hannah's song, which we see when we move into 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah's song here is so interesting. Uh, Hannah's song, uh, of course, really forms the template for Mary's song. Mary is thinking of Hannah's song when she composes her song, known as the Magnificat, found in Luke chapter 1. Her song echoes Hannah's song in all kinds of ways because Mary really sees herself as a new Hannah giving birth to another miraculous son, an even greater miracle uh, as Jesus will be born to a virgin. But there's a difference, and it's interesting. Mary sings her song after becoming pregnant. Hannah sings her song not only after becoming pregnant, not only after giving birth, but actually after giving up her son to the Lord's service at the Lord's house. And if you look at this song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's not the kind of song you'd expect from a new mother. This is not a lullaby. What do we see here? What is this song about? Her role as a barren mother giving birth is really only mentioned in verse 5 of the song. The rest of it is about something much bigger God is doing and something much bigger God will do. 
And that's really the key to this whole story. It's not just about Hannah and her barrenness. It's not just about Hannah and Samuel. It's really about God and Israel. It's about God and His promises. It's about God and His salvation. Hannah's plight really is a picture of Israel's plight. Hannah's story really is Israel's story. Hannah's story really is our story. Hannah's story becomes prophetic of what God will do for his people. And Hannah sees this as Hannah moves from barren to fruitful, from shamed to glorified, from accused to vindicated, from death to life, from mourning to rejoicing, from fasting to feasting. You see, something much bigger is going on. This is, again, not just about Hannah's own suffering. It's about the suffering of God's people. It's about the plight of Israel. What does she say in this song? Verse 1, she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Horns, of course, have to do with strength. The horn of an animal is its strength. Hannah is saying, The Lord has made the weak strong. She sings, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Or this could also be read as, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your victory. Well, who is Hannah smiling about? What enemies is she gloating over? The enemy is not just Penina. The enemy is not even, ultimately, the Philistines who are oppressing Israel at this time. The enemy is ultimately Satan. The enemy is ultimately death. And Hannah here joins the whole host of saints who have laughed in the face of death, knowing that God promises us victory over the grave. We can join with Hannah in laughing at these enemies of Satan and death because God saves us. God gives us the victory over these enemies. That's what Hannah is looking forward to. Verse 2 describes God's holiness and God's uniqueness. There's no rock like our rock. Then starting in verse 3, she describes a series of reversals. And it's interesting. Each one of these is picked up by Mary later on. The Magnificat is all about the reversals God will bring about through the birth of Mary's son. And here you see that anticipated. These reversals. Verse 3 describes how the Lord will judge the proud, silencing their arrogant talk. Again, don't just think of Penina. Don't even just think of the Philistines. Think of Satan boasting. Has God really said? Satan will be silenced. His lies will be silenced. His accusations will be silenced. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty will be broken. The stumbling will be raised up. The full will go hungry while the hungry will be filled. The barren has borne seven while she who has many children will become feeble. It's as if Hannah and Penina switch places. God is doing this reversal. But again, it's much more than that. Hannah was not looking merely for personal vindication. She was looking for her nation to be delivered. She asked for a son who could be that deliverer, who would play a role in delivering the nation of Israel. And through all of that, what is God going to do? God's going to provide a picture. Through Samuel, God's going to provide a picture of a much greater deliverance that will come through Mary's son, who will be a second Hannah giving birth to a greater Samuel. Hannah sings in verses 6, 7, and 8 about how the Lord will turn things upside down. The Lord kills and makes alive, she sings. He brings down to the grave and resurrects. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He lifts the beggar from the ashes and sets him among princes and makes him to inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. 
Hannah continues with these thoughts of reversal, and then she speaks of pillars. Pillars, of course, are architectural structures, and it's as if Hannah is describing the world as the Lord's house. This is a very common way of describing the, 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 the whole creation. God built the creation as a house to dwell in. Creation is an act of house building, and Hannah echoes that here. But actually, I think Hannah has something else in view. She has in view what we could call the new creation. The Lord's creation of His people as a house for for Him to dwell in. Specifically, the Lord forming Israel and now the church into a house He will dwell in. But what's happened? Why Why do we need these new pillars? Well, because Israel has become unfaithful. Israel is no longer a fit habitation for the Lord. Israel is no longer functioning as a house for the Lord because the nation has been defiled. Israel must be torn down in order to be rebuilt into a faithful house for the Lord. And so Hannah goes on to say that the Lord will guard the feet of the saints while the wicked are silenced in darkness. The saints will walk in the light while the wicked stumble and fall in the dark. The adversaries of the Lord will be shattered. The Lord will thunder against them and he will judge the ends of the earth. This is Hannah, new mom. This is her song. Hannah says God will do all of this because the Lord has given her a son. That son is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. And so then her song ends with a shocking prophecy. Shocking because In a sense, it seems to come out of nowhere. She says, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed, of course, is Messiah in the Hebrew or Christ in the Greek. She's not here just talking about her son who belongs to the priestly tribe of Levi. No, she's talking about a coming king who must be from the tribe of of Judah, the royal tribe. She is speaking of the Lion of Judah, the king who will come forth from the tribe of Judah and rule with a scepter in his hand. Now, the thing is, there's no king in Israel at this point. But Hannah says, a king is coming. Her song clearly expresses an expectation of one beyond Samuel, not just a Nazarite priest, but a victorious king. This is what her song is about. Certainly it has some kind of initial fulfillment later on in the book of Samuel, in David, who is anointed by her son Samuel. But more than that, it points to great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one Hannah sings about. He is the one who fulfills her song. He is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the King. And everything Hannah sings about hinges on Him and will come to fulfillment in Him. Hannah's song points to Him. Now, two questions here. Two questions I think we have to wrestle with in light of this passage. First, how could Hannah have such confidence that God would renew Israel, that God would recreate and restore Israel, that Israel is going to be torn down so Israel can be rebuilt in a new and better way? How did Hannah have this confidence? How is she she's so assured that the Israelites would have victory over their enemies, that they'd be able to laugh at their enemies and smile over their enemies? Well, 
She's a barren woman who has given birth. The Lord had closed her womb, and now the Lord has opened her womb. And we've seen this story before. Hannah knows the pattern. This is a story that has played itself out again and again already in the Scriptures. When the womb of the barren is open in the Old Testament, God is doing something special. God is doing something special and powerful to redeem His people, to restore His people. It's a theme, of course, that then culminates in the Gospels with Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist, another miraculous birth, and then especially with Mary, the ultimate miraculous birth as she gives birth as a virgin to Jesus. It's a pattern that goes all the way back to Sarah in the book of Genesis. When Sarah was barren in the book of Genesis, it was not just a crisis in Abraham's family. It was that, but it was much more. Really, Sarah's barrenness put God's whole redemptive program in jeopardy. It called into question whether or not God's Promises would be fulfilled. See, God's promise of salvation takes the form of a promised seed. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will come to crush the serpent's head. And if the woman is barren, the seed of the woman can't come. Abraham is told the seed will come through him, through his family. And he's told that through this seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The curse will be reversed and blessing poured out in its place. But the fulfillment of that promise hinges on the coming of the seed. All of Abraham's hopes center on the seed. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of a great multitude. But then there's this problem. Abraham's wife can't have a child. Sarah's barrenness stands in the way of God's promises. If Sarah can't have a son, if she doesn't produce a seed, then God's redemptive promises hit a dead end. God's redemptive program crashes into a wall. The promise goes unfulfilled. The covenant is broken. So when God opens her dead womb, it is a sign God is still committed to keeping His promises. And so it is here in 1 Samuel. I mean, childlessness is hard enough to deal with for any couple who experiences it. There's no doubt about that. But think about what it meant for those couples in ancient Israel, Old Covenant Israel. Israel's whole calling is to produce the promised seed, the Messiah, the the Savior, the King. And every birth in Israel is a sign that that hope is still alive. And that's why any case of barrenness in Israel is such a, a crisis. Because it throws this plan this program into jeopardy and hannah knows this she knows the crisis is not just in her own family it's much bigger than that she doesn't want a son just for her own sake she wants a nazarite son who can restore her fallen and oppressed nation she wants a nazarite son who can lift israel up from the ash heap of history who can bring a dead nation to life who can cast off israel's enemies hannah's barrenness And then her miraculous birth is part of this much larger story. See, Samuel is a great gift. A gift of the Lord to Hannah. A gift of the Lord to Israel. But Samuel is not the seed. And neither is Samson the seed. And neither is David the seed. 
Now together, Samuel and Samson and David will all picture the seed in various ways. They will point ahead to the seed, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. But they're pictures. They're prophetic. And so when Jesus finally comes, born of the ultimate barren womb, the womb of a virgin, he will do in an ultimate way what Samuel and Samson and David and others could only do in a provisional way. He will bring about the great reversal, the great redemption, the great victory. Because of Jesus, we can smile at our enemies. Because of Jesus, we know the victory is ours. Because of Jesus, we're lifted off of the ash heap of history and raised up. Because of Jesus, those who are hungry will be filled. See, Advent is all about remembering the Lord's promises. Promises like this. Promises that come in the form of God giving Hannah a son, Samuel. That's a promise. It's a sign God's going to make good on His promise. Advent's all about remembering the Lord's promises. Christmas is all about remembering how God has remembered those promises and how He is fulfilling those promises in Christ. That's what it's all about. This Advent-Christmas cycle, promise, promise fulfilled. Promise made, promise kept. And so what are you to do? Trust in Christ. Receive Christ. Rest in Christ. Hope in Christ. Look to Christ as your King. Look to Christ as your Deliverer. Salvation is found in Christ alone. That's the message of this story to us. But consider this as well. This is the other question we have to ask. What is Hannah's story? What can we learn from Hannah for our present circumstances. How does the story of Hannah speak to the church in our culture in our present day? You know, Hannah lived in a time of decay and crisis in Israel, uh, a time of spiritual decline in Israel. Politically, the nation was in shambles. Foreign invaders were a constant threat. The Philistines were ruling over the Israelites. They had basically been enslaved. It was a terrible time for the people of Israel. They were under the command and rule of pagans. The, the Philistines were ruling over them. The nation was weak. The nation of Israel had failed. Ecclesiastically and liturgically, they were corrupt as well. You actually go on in the next chapter, if you continue reading in Samuel, you see this with the priests. The nation is sinking into idolatry. The church in Israel, if I can speak that way, the church in Israel was not the solution, but part of the problem. The priestly leadership and Israel's worship had been defiled. The people who are supposed to worship God exclusively and faithfully were giving themselves over to the worship of idols. There was sexual immorality. They were stained in all kinds of ways. You might say Hannah's day was a lot like ours. What do we see in our day? We have political division and corruption in our culture as well. Our churches are weak and compromised as well, unable to provide sound leadership to the culture. Our churches are compromised in how we worship and how we live. And so what do we do? Well, Hannah shows us. What do we do? How do we bring reformation to a church, to a nation, to a culture? Do you want to see the world changed? Do you want to see the culture transformed? 
Do you want to see all the corruption, all the compromise in the church dealt with? Do you want to see all the problems in our culture resolved? Hannah shows us how to bring reformation to a church, to a nation, to a culture. We have to start where Hannah started, with prayer. What does Hannah do? She prays. Hannah sees the crisis in Israel, in Israel as a state, in Israel as a church. She sees the crisis and she agonizes over it. She grieves over it. She mourns over it. And she pours herself out before the Lord. She gives her grief to the Lord in prayer. And what happens? Hannah's prayers are like the first domino in a whole line of dominoes to fall. And so we start off at the beginning of 1 Samuel with a great crisis. A great crisis in Israel politically and ecclesiastically. All kinds of corruption and immorality. But what do you find by the end? By the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, Israel has been renewed. Politically, Israel has been renewed. A godly king, a man after God's own heart, David, is on the throne. His successor is about to take his place. But it's not just there politically. It's also liturgically, ecclesiastically. Israel has been renewed as well. The corrupt priesthood has been removed. There's a new priesthood on the horizon. The temple building project is in the works. The church has been reformed. Everything is different. There is a trajectory, there is an arc to this story. And it moves from a time of enslavement and corruption to the most glorious period in Israel's history. And where does it start? It starts with Hannah praying. The church and the nation are renewed. And it all started with a woman's prayer. I have to ask you, are you grieved by what you see all around us? Are you grieved by what you see in the church at large? Are you grieved by what you see in our culture? Are you grieved by what you see in the churches of our land and in the culture of our land? Do you want to see the church renewed in our land? Do you want to see the culture transformed? Do you want to see an end to senseless violence, to abortion, to the promotion of homosexuality? Do you want to see an end to no-fault divorce, to feminism, to the politics of transgenderism, to crony capitalism, to socialism, to statism? Do you want to see all these various manifestations of idolatry, all these ailments we face, do you want to see them transform? Hannah shows you what to do. Pray. 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 Pray and then pray some more. Pour your heart out before the Lord. Pour out your pain, your grief, your anxiety, your concern. Pour out before the Lord your desire to see the world changed. Your desire to see Christ honored. Said of John Knox during uh, the Reformation, Knox prayed to the Lord, Give me Scotland lest I die. He poured out his heart for his nation, and his nation was transformed. And the history of the church is littered with these kinds of examples of people who, through prayer, transformed kingdoms and cultures. It's there for us to do. 
We want to see our nation, indeed every nation, submitted to this promised Messiah, this King Jesus. What do we do? Pray like Hannah and the world will be changed. Pray like Hannah and God will turn the world upside down, which means He'll be putting things right side up. You want to see the world change? You want to see the world transformed? Pray. That's the lesson. Let's give thanks. Father, we do thank You for this story. We thank You for Your promises. The promise to send a seed, Your Son, the seed of the woman, the eternal Word made flesh, the Messiah anointed to be our priest, king, and prophet to save us. Oh, Father, may we see His kingdom grow. May we see His kingdom advance. Father, You know we love to see the lost found. We love to see the guilty pardoned. We love to see the ashamed restored. Father, we know we live in a broken culture, a broken nation. We know our land is filled with broken churches that don't work or function as they should. Father, we know Your people who are supposed to be the solution are now part of the problem. And so we confess our own sins and failings to You first. And Father, we ask that You would work. That You would work through Your Son and through Your Spirit. That You would work through Your church and the prayers of Your people. That You would work through the service of Your saints to fulfill Your kingdom promises. That Christ may be known, honored, and exalted in every place. This is our prayer in His name. Amen.